Welcome to The Lamp Post in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamp Post in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel. And joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. This is season one, episode four, Someday My Prince Will Come, Joseph, Cinderella, and Happy Endings. Now, some of you out there might be thinking, uh, wait just a minute, the lamppost in the woods. Don't you guys know that Someday My Prince Will Come is from Snow White and not Cinderella? The answer is, of course, we know that information. But if you stick around... I think that by the end of this episode, you will see why we decided to title this episode, Someday My Prince Will Come. You know, there's so many stories that start with a suffering hero who, by the end of the story, is rewarded with a happy ending. And why do we like these stories so much? Why do we gravitate to them so much? Are they realistic? More importantly, what is it that we can learn from these stories? So that's what we're going to kind of delve into today and kind of as a launching pad for this discussion, we are going to be discussing the stories of Joseph and Cinderella in order to find that out. So let's go ahead and dive into it, shall we? So if you listen to episode three of season one, it was all about the importance of fables and parables and fairy tales. We talked about why these types of stories were important and just why we needed them. So we're going to kind of continue in that same vein, but kind of just focus in a little bit and specifically talk about just a couple different stories in order to, to, um, to kind of prove this point. So why, you guys? Let, let's hear from the rest of the group. Why do we need these simple stories? Well, the first thing is interconnectedness. If you read one fairy tale, you will find parts from other fairy tales. If you read one of these short stories, you'll see how they are connected with and related to other stories and how they're influential. So if we wanna understand a lot of the stories that we enjoy today, we ought to look at these old, simple stories to see where the stories we like today come from. And another thing would be teachability. And that is when we read fairy tales, we usually start reading fairy tales when we're kids. And most of the time, not only because it's something that's entertaining, but at the core of fairy tales, there's a lesson that's in them that uh, parents can teach from and ultimately as we grow older, teach, teach those around us as well. I'd have to say it's foundational for us. And I know I beat this drum every single episode that we do. Um, but there's just something about these stories that we we hear and that we share with our children and and they just make such a lasting impact. And I feel like they influence us in the back of our mind without us even knowing what's going on. And there's just something so special and magical about that, like the fairy tales that they are. For me, it's all about the hopefulness of these stories and just the the happy endings that come with them. And you know it's going to be a fairy tale when you have a happy ending. And it's just so helpful because you look at these stories, even, you know, these fairy tales, if they're make-believe stories, but you can just... You know, you look at these stories and think that, oh, if a happy ending happened for that character, if that character had hope in their life, then I can have hope too. So we still love these stories. We come back to them over and over and over. Why? Well, I think it's because they say something important to us about life. You know, there's a bunch of different versions of all these, of of many different stories. Why do we tell certain stories over and over and over? Because they say something important to us. 
And that's why we're looking at Cinderella and Joseph today. Awesome. Okay, so first we are going to be starting with Cinderella. This is just such a popular story, and many of us probably grew up with this story, whether it was storybooks or it was the, the Disney movie version. It's just a very popular story, and it's very old, very universal story, and we'll be getting into it a little bit more, how there's different cultures have different versions of this story, and it just kind of seems to pop up in all these, these different cultures because it's a, an, an important story. And at the very core of it, at the very base of the story, it's about a suffering heroine who clings to her faith and is rewarded at the end. So someone who goes through trials, who has bad things happen to her, but yet she still keeps up her faith. She still has a good attitude and she still acts good and virtuous. And at the end, she's rewarded. So Benjamin, why don't you go ahead and give us maybe kind of the original kind of version of this story? Yeah. So one of the reasons we chose this story in the first place is because Cinderella has been told for literally thousands of years. You know, everybody knows like the Disney version of it that we see. That is a version that's been influenced uh, by other stories that are very, very old. Um, and, and, and that arose that seems like separately in different cultures. But it seems like the oldest one we have is called the story of Rhodopis. Rhodopis, I'm not sure how to say that because it's, it's, a, it's a Greek name, but was an old um, Egyptian story uh, that was that was told and retold by some of the Greeks and was actually originally told. I think the first the first um, recording we have is by the Greek geographer Strabo from somewhere about 50 BC, somewhere in there. Um, he lived, uh, you know, a little bit before the, the time of Christ, and he relates this story about um, this young woman named Rhodopis. And I will. It's a. It's only a very short mentioned. So I'm going I'm to quote it for you from his Geographica. He says, they tell the fabulous story that when she was bathing, referring to this maiden, an eagle snatched one of her sandals from her maid and carried it to Memphis. And while the king was administering justice in the open air, the eagle, when it arrived above his head, flung the sandal into his lap. And the king, stirred both by the beautiful shape of the sandal and by the strangeness of the occurrence, sent men in all directions into the country in quest of the woman who wore the sandal. And when she found she was found in the city of Nacratus or Nacratus, she was brought up to Memphis and became the wife of the king. So there, in our earliest version, in our earliest version, we have already some important uh, uh, pieces of the story of that Cinderella that we know. First of all, a young woman who who is not royalty at all, and her shoe somehow gets into the hand of a prince or a king, a ruler, who then falls in love with her and then sends out that shoe, in this case, it's a sandal instead of a glass slipper, but sends out that shoe for the woman who will fit it. And when he finds a woman who fits it, he marries her and brings her into his kingdom. So we've already got this, we don't know if it's a suffering heroine, but we do have this heroine who, you know, is way down here at the lower end of society and she is raised up to become essentially the queen. Um, and we see that in some of our later versions. So that as we go through other cultures, there's some other ones like this. I, I, there's a couple in the Arabian Nights even that are very similar, but there's another in very old one, which is actually a Chinese version. And I think Jen uh, can tell us about that one. Jen? Yes, so the Chinese version is called Yi, Yi Qian. Um, hopefully I pronounced that right. But what's interesting in this story is we do see that she is a suffering hero. 
I'm going to explain a little bit about it because it's kind of fascinating. Uh, she is raised by her stepmother and she did not like that she was prettier and smarter than her own daughter, which we see later on in, in the Cinderella that we know. Um, and she treated her quite poorly. And so she made her do all this work. And part of that is she would go out to this pond and her only friend was a fish. Like that's how sad mm. her life was. And her stepmother learned about this friendship that she had with this fish. What did she do? She had the fish killed. And Yi Qian was absolutely devastated. She was crushed, like her one part of her life that was so happy. Then out of nowhere, as um, happens in fairy tales, this man uh, comes from the sky and descends and sits next to Yi Qian and tells her that he knows where the bones of this fish was buried and that these fish bones are magical and she can pray to them. Uh, and when she prays to these magical bones that something good will happen. So she learns about this festival that is taking place in town where all the maidens would go to find prospective husbands. So she prays to these magic bones uh, before she goes to this festival. And when she's there, she does see her stepmother and stepsister and realizes that they recognize her. And so she flees which she had had a shoe. And this is where we do see the magical shoe. It was a golden magical shoe. And in similar to the story that Ben just told is that the king found this shoe and then he just had to have the woman who this shoe belonged to. So in like modern day, we see that the prince had met the woman who the shoe belonged to. But in these older versions, the kings had never met the woman. They'd only found the shoe and they just wanted the person who the shoe belonged to, which is really interesting. Um, and, and so in the end, she comes to the castle and they live happily ever after. What I also found is super interesting is there is this version, but even within the Chinese version, there are several versions of it. So I was even finding online that there were alternative versions. So in one of the versions I read, the stepmother and stepsisters were forgiven and everything was good. In an alternative version, the stepmother and stepsister were kicked out of the, out of the kingdom and then were later killed in a shower of flying stones that came from nowhere. And the local who felt sorry for them buried them in a stone pit and called it the tomb of regretful women. So just really fascinating seeing all these different versions, even within, um, even within a culture. It's a lot worse for the sisters. Mm -hmm. I believe they get their eyes pecked out by uh, birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty intense. But in the Peralt one, they, they're, they're more forgiven. So we have that kind of mm -hmm. in both, in different cultures. And it's interesting too, because you see, um, and we, we've talked about but how little bits of the story kind of pops up in different cultures, but it's like there's always that little bit of element of magic or like the supernatural. Mm -hmm. I was looking up some of the African versions and the one that's from Zimbabwe is uh, called Nayasha. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it's also interesting too, the different um, virtues that, it, that each story kind of chooses to kind of um, really kind of hone in on. And so Nayasha is kind and sensitive. That's how the story describes her. And so her and her sisters, they're going, they want a chance to marry the king of Zimbabwe. So again, you have, you know, this, them trying to find a husband. And so Nayasha befriends a magical snake along the way. They don't have much food with food with them, but she shares her food with a hungry little boy that she sees while her sister doesn't want anything to do with, with this little kid. And so when they actually get to the kingdom, surprise, surprise, the magical snakes turns into the king. And so Nayasha marries him and then her sister becomes her servant. So that's kind of how the sister gets her, 
her just rewards at the end there. But it's just interesting how there's always like some, in most of the stories, there's always this element of like the supernatural of magic. I like how a lot of these elements are are in the story very early on too. You know, like the shoe thing, I actually thought that would be like a much later thing because that's like a random thing, but like, but that's, that's in the earliest versions, like the whole, the whole uh, shoe deal, you know, like, and, and then even in those, in those first ones where the guy doesn't even see the woman and he just goes off of the shoe. I mean, that's a lot. I guess, I guess in the Egyptian one, if an eagle dropped it, that, or the Greek one, that would be, that would have been like a good omen, like a good sign. If an eagle dropped the shoe, so he's having to find who the shoe belongs to, but still, that's a lot of go off of just a, just a shoe. Yeah, and it was kind of the same in, in the Chinese version too, is it was because it was just a golden shoe, but the story when I was reading it, it also said it was magical. So it probably wasn't just the shoe that the king was drawn to, but it was something, you know, once again, going back to the power of magic that he was drawn to. And so when he does find out that this character is from this village that is poor, he's actually mortified and said, there's no way that that the woman I want comes from this village. And she shows up and she's in her rags. Beautiful. And he says, yeah, like he, he shows up in rags and he says, no, this can't be, this can't be the woman. He's still like, all he cares about is just this, this shoe. And then she goes and puts it on and changes and comes out and has a complete transformation. And he's like, now I want her. Maybe yeah. a little very bit. interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. <laughs> And the really interesting thing too is that again, uh, at least I'm not saying that all of these versions are influenced by each other, but somehow they arose in different different areas and have like mm -hmm. these really similar elements in them. Like I'm, exactly. I'm sure at some point that it, it would be hard to go back and find out what the original like like natal story is because there's so much intermingling. But it seems like a lot of these elements did arise on their own. Exactly, know? and I think how much intercourse would there have been between like like ancient Greece and like ancient China, like almost none. Mm -hmm. Right. No, and I think that's a good point to mention because I mean, we call them and even on our podcast, we're calling them like, you know, there's the Chinese version of Cinderella and there's the Egyptian Cinderella. And really it's like all these stories would have arisen kind of on their own. It was only later till scholars or people in a little bit more modern times who actually had access to all those stories actually looked at them and said, hey, there's a lot of similarities actually in all these stories, which I get it. I, I think just kind of proves the point of how um, kind of, important these stories are in the fact that they kind of transcend time and culture and all that i appreciate that our like most recent versions have gone back a little bit to more of a simpler retelling of it because the version that i covered which is comes way of italy the cat it's called the yes. cat cinderella tell um, us about the italian version Evan. <laughs> by giambattista um <laughs> It, it seems like it was a, the first one of the first European collections of oral stories that was that was written out and it was actually meant to be told over the course of like a week long like storytelling event. Somewhere in the 1600s or something like that is where uh, 1634 is what they think 1630 somewhere in there is when it was started. Um, but it, it seems to go off the rails a whole lot <laughs> compared to some of these older versions. Um, because they, you know, as I as I'd mentioned to you guys before, it like they introduced two stepmothers, and so one is like, um, one is the original stepmother, and then there's a a governess as well, and the governess actually tells uh, the the Cinderella uh, who they call Zazola, 
uh, to kill the other stepmother so that the governess who's really sweet and kind can take over. And yeah. so all of these things and this this new so she does and she's like so like literally Zazola kills the stepmother by like dropping a like a wardrobe on her neck. My mom. Right. So then then convinces her father to marry this governess and the governess like treats her really well for for a few days. But then she's like, oh, by the way, I have six of my own daughters. And so that's what I'm saying. It's like all of these things are just like they're amplified across. So yeah, it's like, it's like well, the Uber version. Yeah, it's like, well, two sisters wasn't enough. We have to do six sisters. <laughs> and it includes like a, a, a magical tree and a magical dove. Um, you see some of those little inklings, I think, where we're. Perot and Grimm bring in kind of like the transformation of her her coachman and things like that. Um, but it just, like I said, it just goes off the rails. I don't know what the Italians were doing. I, it seems like they were just kind of like <laughs> delaying this over a period of time to try and fill this like seven day like oral festival of storytelling. Um, but but I mean, it, you know, it again, it shares that same kind of uh, theme with with the shoe um that's that's dropped and matched up but it, it happens after the course of like five feasts that take place so it's not even just a single party it's multiple days multiple parties where the cinderella is like transformed and goes back and and the king sees her and tries to chase her every single night but she manages to like throw like crowns down or pearls down to like distract the people following her and it's a mess it's a mess of a story I was super excited to jump into it, and the more I read, I was like, "Man, this is unbearable." Hopefully, the storyteller was really good. It's funny. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned about multiple feasts because what I found in reading some of these stories, I think it's in the Perot version, and then also in the Grimm's version, is that there's not just like the one ball. Those of us are one party. Those of us that have the kind of the the animated Disney one stuck in our heads. So I guess I I thought like the movie that it was just the one instance where she meets the prince, but in both the pro version i believe grimms as well there's like multiple instances so he, you can see him kind of following falling in love with her if you will and then multiple times where he's kind of trying to find out who she is which i thought was interesting mm -hmm. i thought there was a some, something to bring up about differences between the stories he's mentioning the we're mentioning what's what, what's found in these earlier versions and this is something we can come back to when we get to joseph is the father in the story mm. obviously the father in joseph's story probably has uh more to do with the story um but J joseph's father jacob kind of brings some of this on his son by making him the favorite and like putting him above the other brothers and other brothers hate him so throw that out there but then if you look in the peralt version uh and the brothers grim version read a quick sentence normally we think of the like we don't see the father talk about much in these early versions and then also normally we I think in the most of the Disney versions, the father dies, and it's kind of like Cinderella has good memories of him. Um, but in the Peralt version, it specifically says, when, when it gets this part about Cinderella, it says, the poor girl put up with it all patiently, not daring to complain to her father, who would have scolded her because he was completely under the thumb of his wife. Yeah. So in, in the Peralt version, yeah, the father is still around, but he is totally whipped. You know, he's, he's, mm -hmm. he's not, he is not the father he's supposed to be. And he lets these sorts of things happen. And then if you read the Grimm version, he's at worse. The end of, yeah. At the end of Grimm, uh, the prince is asking him about like, who's the child. Like, like, do you have another daughter in your house? Like, who's going to be, you know, and the father says, no, replied the father, except a little Cinderella daughter of my deceased, deceased wife, 
who cannot possibly be the bride. Just totally like he didn't even call, so her, awful. He didn't even call her his daughter. He calls her mm. the daughter of his deceased wife. So there's this idea here that, uh, and you know, who knows? Maybe the, I, I, not who knows, we know the reason that Jacob liked Joseph best is because he liked his mother best. That was right. his favorite wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we have this idea here that there's an influence of the mother on the father. It's a lot, it's a lot more obvious in the, in the, in the, in the grim and the prop version, but the father is being controlled by this overpowering, like domineering woman. He's just totally whipped, not doing anything he's supposed to do. And he allows this sort of thing to happen to Cinderella. Which is just interesting that like, if you see in like some of the more modern mo movie versions, they choose to like kill off the father. So the father isn't there, but it's just interesting because it's like in these versions, like Perot in the pro version and then the Grimm's version, he's so not even a character. He does so little that it's like, he, you might, he might as well not even be in the story. Like they might as well have killed him off because he does nothing to like help his daughter, you know, which is just really, really interesting. I guess I, I thought that in all the versions that the, the dad would have been dead, but no, he's alive, but he just like, isn't really being much of a father, which is, I guess, a little bit, sad. a little bit sad. Yeah, totally. I think it helps the story, honestly, when you have the father that mm -hmm. doesn't care as much or doesn't have the, the willpower to kind of fight for his daughter, because it makes the story a little bit more tragic and therefore yeah. makes her, her kind of mm -hmm. salvation a little bit more like, mm -hmm. oh, thank goodness. Like finally someone came to her rescue. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if killing off the father is like more of a, a modern, like, get out of just like let's get out of the way of that theme you know what i mean right um, right <laughs> i was gonna say like even as an author you're just like i don't know what to do with this character so you just kill them because you don't <laughs> no other way out yeah you know? so it's probably like i don't know let's just let's just get rid of him and yeah, then we'll yeah. focus on the rest of the story <laughs> right i think it helps the archetypes better too uh the, the, like the themes there because then we have we have like the tyrannical mother who's not just the father's gone, but the father's there and she still mm -hmm. overpowers him as control of him. You know, it's a, in some ways, I guess it's a, it's a story about a, a, you know, a battle between the daughter and her mother, her stepmother, which probably has been influ or experienced by many people throughout the world, you know, so there's even more that people can identify with, I think. And it's interesting that you called it a battle because what I was struck this time and kind of reading through the stories and even watching some of the different film versions is that like, for the most part, the sisters are portrayed as kind of dumb. Like they're, they're, they're pretty silly yeah. and they just don't know what's going on. But the stepmother is very cunning. She's very smart. And it's like, she knows what she's about. So it is, it's like, there's almost like this battle of, battle of the minds between the stepmother and Cinderella. Cause really without the stepmother, the stepsisters, I don't think they would have been much of a threat, but it's the stepmother. True. So it's in some way, it's like, how much, how True. much does she also dominate them and not, and not just Cinderella, you know? Absolutely. Well, she's the one who is manipulating the entire situation. Yeah. So because of her manipulating tactics, then it's completely influenced the stepsisters and the way they view themselves, which goes to show what the power of that someone can hold and, and being able to influence how you even view yourself. And I think sure. what's powerful, though, is that Cinderella, Cinderella doesn't allow that to change how she views herself, right. which is why she ultimately comes out on top in the end. Totally. Really good. Probably one of the most, um, if we're looking at kind of when these stories were recorded, probably one of the most even recent ones was a version that um, is called the Native American version. And I remember reading the story and even watching a little animated movie of it when I was a kid and, and really ended up liking it. But this was recorded probably in like the early 1900s, by, by as far as what I could see. 
and it was popular with some of the Native American tribes actually in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and uh, Prince Edward Island in Canada. So I guess you could call it the Canadian version, but really it, it's the Native American version and uh, kind of unique to a lot of the stories. There's no stepmother in this version. And it's interesting too, I mentioned it before him, but the different uh, traits that each of these stories bring out, because we know from the most part in all these versions that Cinderella was a good person. She was positive in, in hard times and all that. But the element that this story really brings up is the truthfulness and her honesty. In, in most of the versions I found of the Native American uh, version of it, she's not really named. The only one version that named her, which this is not a great name, but they, it, it, they call her rough-faced girl, which I mean, it's yeah. not a great name. Yeah. But so basically, so what happened, um, and it's really kind of tragic how she got that name, but so it's like there were three sisters. So there were no stepsisters in this version, but three sisters, rough-faced girl or the unnamed Cinderella was the youngest of the sisters. And their father was a chief. And there was this like mighty, um, very handsome warrior named Strongwind that all the women wanted to marry. But he didn't want to just marry anyone. So what, he, and he was magical. So here's kind of that element of magic and he could make himself invisible. So what he would do is he would have his, his sister was kind of involved in this plan. So Strongwind's sister was involved and they would, she would take any potential maidens and they would like walk along the beach and Strongwind would be walking alongside them, but he would be invisible. And so the sister would say to the maiden, do you, do you see him? And they would also, oh yes, absolutely, I see him. So the sister would ask questions like, you know, what is his cloak made out of? What is his sled made out of? And, the, and all of the women would lie, you know, and just make, you know, make something up, you know, cause they couldn't really see him. And so then they would lose their chance and they would, you know, be banished or whatever. And so, um, so that's kind of the, the context there, but so rough faced girl or the unnamed Cinderella, you know, she was much more beautiful and kind than the older sisters. And so they were jealous and so, in this version, they actually, they would like cut her hair and actually burned her arm and her face with the fire. So that's why, where I guess she gets the name rough faced girl, but still was very kind throughout all of it. The version that the text says that she was patient and kept her gentle heart and went gladly about her work. And she wanted an opportunity to see strong wind. So she's walking along with the sister. And of course her sisters are giving her a hard time about it. And there's no way he'd choose you or there's no way you have a chance. And so the sister asks, can you see him? Can you see strong wind? And Cinderella says, no, I, I can't, I can't see him. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't see him. And so she was honest and truthful and Strongwind liked that about her. So he made himself visible to her and she was able to see him. And so then he chose her as her, as his bride and her long and her hair grew back and all her scars would be removed. And her evil sisters were turned into trees at the end. So they got their just desserts there. And then, and then Cinderella would walk by and ask Strongwind, do you see the trees? Do you see them? There you go. Very good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I just like that version because I like, I like, again, how you're getting in all these versions, we get maybe some different pieces that are pulled out as far as what are the, the positive traits that Cinderella has. And this one, it's her truthfulness. And if she could have lied, maybe it would have been easier for her, but she decided to be truthful. And then she's rewarded for her truthfulness. The fact that she didn't lie in this case is what actually gets her what she wants everybody else exactly. did lie and she didn't lie mm -hmm. right when she could have and so she's the one who gets it so yeah i, I think it's a it's a very interesting take on it that seems very the most wholesome for sure yeah yeah mm -hmm. the slipper was inside her all along oh that's good evan that's good and where i actually read the story is it i don't know if anyone's heard of the book of virtues which it's basically what it sounds it's a whole bunch of stories that's collected from multiple different cultures there's even stories from the bible there's 
speeches by founding fathers and it's supposed to teach children all these different virtues like honesty and trust trust and compassion all these different things and that story was in there and I remember us reading it as kids and then like I said there was like a little cheesy animated movie version that we saw as well but that that version always kind of stuck with me a little bit so I liked that one right why do we care about it because it reinforces ideas we all know are true right there's our, there's there's my rough transition for it so there's even more versions of, of the story that we talked about, but just for sake of time, we won't go over all of them. And we've kind of mentioned brief, briefly about it, but the story of Cinderella has tons of adaptation. There's so many different movie versions about it. And of course, many of us are most familiar with the animated Disney version that came out in 1950. And that's kind of the definitive Cinderella for a lot of us. That's kind of our version of Cinderella. There was also a very, very famous Rodgers and Hammerstein musical version that came out in 1957. It was originally a made-for-television musical that starred the great Julie Andrews and was performed later on stage. And the cool thing about it is it kind of brought, it was kind of the first ever kind of made-for-television musical. And so it brought a little taste of Broadway to people's homes, people who wouldn't be able to like normally go out and to see a show. So it brought it into the homes of Americans. And how cool was it that it was the story of Cinderella that, that did that? There was a film version made of the musical in the 90s. Then in 1998, there was a film version for film that came out called Ever After, which many people know of. It was promoted as like a Cinderella story, even in the tagline. Um, then there's modern adaptations, 2004, a movie called A Cinderella Story that kind of puts Cinderella as like a modern day teenager um, working in her, in, her, in her family's diner. And it's like we can't get enough of the story because even off of that, there's been even more adaptions made. I'm just reading off a couple to you guys from Google. There is A Cinderella Story 2, A Cinderella Story If the Shoe Fits, A Cinderella Story Once Upon a Song, and A Cinderella Story A Christmas Wish. Then of course there's, you know, the, the live action Disney version that came out in 2015. But so a lot of versions of this story, you know, multiple you know, versions from different cultures, and then also just a lot of film versions yeah. that came out because we had, we said we keep telling this story, right? This story is important to people. People keep being drawn to this story. People aren't getting tired of it, you know, with all the different versions of it that have been made. So what is it about this story? Why do we care so much about, about this story? Or why even should we care about this story? And I think it's because it reinforces ideas that we all know to be true. I think one of the main aspects of this story too is the heroine. Everyone loves Cinderella. And I think in all the different versions, even that we've shared and in the modern day version that we grew up with is that we really love Cinderella as a person, the character that she is and you're rooting for her because despite all the suffering, despite everything that's thrown her way, she is someone who still has a gentle spirit. She still has goodness in her heart and character and still wants the best for everyone around her, even those who have hurt her the most, which I think is just really powerful to who she is. And I think ultimately that's what draws the prince to her, at least, you know, in the version that I grew up with, is it's not so much the beauty because everyone shows up looking as beautiful as ever, but he's drawn to her character. He's drawn to something that's much deeper. And it just makes me think of how what's most important, right, is the inner character, is the faith. And it just reminded me of a verse uh, when I was reading about this in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, which says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the 
its spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And I think ultimately that's what it is about Cinderella. It's, it's the hidden person of the heart. It's what's on the inside that matters most. And that can speak volumes to a lot of young girls. And even if you're older, you know, reading this story today. I think it's reinforced as well when we look at um, Cinderella's actions, the way that she goes about her her lifestyle, the way that she treats others. Um, Matthew 7 and 12 comes to mind, and it just simply says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And Cinderella just, she personifies, I think, everything that we want the world to be. Um, she is obviously realistic about her situation, but that faith, that hopefulness, I think drives her to touch people in ways that others wouldn't. She could easily have retaliated. She could have easily left, but she carries out her chores. She, she conducts herself in a way that is like, there's nothing to take away from Cinderella um, in most of these versions that, that shows her in any kind of bad light. She's constantly looking after people not because she's forced to do it, but because she finds value in just caring for the people, even the ones that don't care for her. Um, and I think, again, I think it's just a reinforcement of, it touches something deep within side of us to say, this is how we want the world to be. This is how, as Christians, we want to act. And no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much my, my enemy harms me, I still need to pray for them. I still need to care for them and give them food because no one else will. And, and, take care of the needs that they have because no one else will, even though they try and harm me and hurt me. And so I think it's just that it's that ideal world. It's that small town feel that we're all looking for or dreaming about. Um, and I think that's just, that's a big theme throughout. It's just dreaming and thinking of a world more perfect than it is and kind of living your life as if it, that world were real. Yeah. Cinderella gets treated pretty badly by a lot of people, you know, she's persecuted uh, by her, her stepsisters and her stepmother. Um, and she doesn't retaliate, you know, and I think that's, that's one of her most shining characteristics. And that's definitely one of the things that, you know, the Bible gives us the injunction to suffer persecution. You know, we're going to have persecutions that we go through, but we have to be able to go through them without retaliating and without becoming bitter. And I love how Cinderella, um, is able to do that. Um, I was actually, I was talking to a friend a couple of years back who had a young daughter and he was telling me, you know, I don't, I don't let my daughter listen to, or I don't let her watch Cinderella because, you know, Cinderella doesn't do anything when she's, when people are, are mean to her, she doesn't fight back. She has no, she has no agency at all. So I don't want my daughter to be like that. Um, and I had to tell my friend, Hey, you totally misunderstood the whole story there because the whole <laughs> point, the whole point is that Cinderella is persecuted and she could fight back, but she doesn't. And she, she, she suffers the persecution without treating people the way that she would feel like treating, but instead treats them how she would want to be treated. You know, and you can go into all kinds of stuff about Cinderella. You know, if, if you look at the historical context and like the, these places in Europe, Cinderella didn't really have any other options. She couldn't just go get a new job someplace or move into a different apartment. You know, she didn't, her father was dead uh, or her father didn't care, you know. And so she thought like she could go, change her entire social status at that point. So she did what she could do in her situation that she was good. She was kind. She did not come bitter, become bitter or resentful um, in suffering those things. And I think that's something that young girls and all of us can, can 
learn from is that there are sometimes situations where we can't we can't necessarily change the situation. We're going to have to suffer persecution, and we have to be able to do it without retaliating or without becoming bitter or resentful. So good. For me, what sticks out is just the power of forgiveness and how Cinderella, you know, it depends on the version that you look at, but in some of the more prominent versions, like the Peralt version, she forgives her stepsisters at the end. So they were mean to her, did all this horrible stuff to her, but yet at the end, she forgives them and she's reconciled to them, which forgiveness is a great trait that not only that Cinderella had, but one of the things that we all need to learn from. And no matter where we are in our lives, we need to learn to forgive people, no matter what it is that happens to us, we need to learn forgiveness. And this is a perfect segue into our next person that we're going to discuss, because those of you that know the story of Joseph in the Bible know that forgiveness is a huge part of the story. And so we're going to dive into the story of Joseph now. His story is told in the book of Genesis. And I, I'll be honest, Joseph is one of my absolute favorite people in the Bible. I love his story. It just, it, it's, 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 a, it's a great story. It's, it's extremely epic. And it's just really even important to the biblical narrative too, because if you look at the book of Genesis, scholars have determined that it spans over probably about 2000 years of, of human history. And there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, and yet nine-ish chapters are devoted to the story of Joseph. So over 2000 years covered in the book of Genesis, but yet almost a, you know, a fifth of the book, the entire book is devoted to this guy named Joseph and it totally makes sense why because it's just a it's an amazing story and it's an amazing count of just forgiveness and the suffering hero and all of that so who was joseph so joseph was the 11th son of jacob and so J jacob had 12 sons joseph was number 11 out of all of the sons and um you know this joseph and his siblings would later become the nation of israel and lots of good stuff with history there but this is kind of their origins so Benjamin mentioned it a little bit ago, but Joseph was his dad's favorite. So he, um, the Bible says that Joseph kind of, you know, was his favorite because he was born to him in his old age, but kind of the, the underlying stuff there is that he was the son of Rachel, the, the one that, that Jacob had loved the most. And so Joseph was spoiled, you know, his brothers would have to go off and work and he could kind of stay in the house and wouldn't have to do any work. His dad made him a beautiful coat of many colors that many of us, you know, that if you think about the story, a lot of people, you know, think of Joseph and the coat of many colors. So Joseph was his dad's favorite. His dad made him a beautiful coat of many colors, which is kind of synonymous with the story of Joseph. Sometimes we just refer to him as Joseph and the coat of many colors or Joseph, you know, with the coat of many colors. So he was kind of the, the favorite son and Joseph was quite the dreamer. So he would have dreams and he shared some of these dreams with his brothers and, um, one of the dreams that he had was, you know, he had, he had a couple dreams and they were a little bit similar, but he said, you know, hey, you know, we were, I had a dream that we all had, you know, sheaves of grain, you know, when we were working in the fields and then all your sheaves of grain bowed down to my sheaf of grain. And his brothers were like, wait a second. He didn't say it with that tone in his voice. I mean, of course I feel like he did. As an oldest sibling, I am most positive that Joseph said it in that tone. I mean, it doesn't say in the Bible, but we just know his brothers were not happy about it. So I, I don't know. You can take it however you want to take it. Maybe he said it in a nicer tone. Well, it's Who interesting knows? that even Cinderella understood not to say that in the movie version because the little bird asked her what she dreams. Like, no, I can't tell us. It won't come true. That's a good even point. Even she understood you don't <laughs> tell people your your dreams. But come on, Joe. Especially if it includes them, you know, your siblings, all your older siblings bowing down before you. 
Um, and he had another similar dream, but in this dream, it wasn't just his brothers bowing down to him. It was his mom and dad bowing down to him as well. And even his dad at that point was kind of like, Joseph, like you're saying that you, even me and your mother would bow down before you. But the Bible says that Jacob kind of kept that in the back of his mind and kind of, you know, thought about it a little bit. He didn't forget about that. So time passes on and uh, Joseph's brothers were out working in the field and Jacob told Joseph, okay, I need you to go look at your brothers, you know, go see how they're doing and see how it's going. See, so. Joseph's dad's the one who ruins the whole thing. He does a little bit. I mean, because really, like literally, he tells him, "Hey, I want you to go to be a tattletale." No, that that's straight up it. That's definitely you know, it. Cinderella doesn't deserve a lot, but Joseph, eh, except for in the Italian version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Joseph goes to check on his brothers. You know, tattle. You know, aka check on his brothers, make sure they have everything that they need. And as they see him coming, they say, "Oh, look, here's that dreamer. We'll see. You know what happens to him in his dreams. Let's go ahead and let's let's kill him." And the brothers talk back and forth and Reuben, the oldest, was like, no, we can't kill him. You know, there's no way we can kill him. Let's just throw him in this dry well and we'll just leave him there. You know, and what happens, happens. Reuben thought he was going to go back later and rescue him. But before he can rescue him, these slave traders come. And what do Joseph's brothers do? But they sell him to the slave traders. Pretty intense, right? So that I know Cinderella's nice. sisters like, you know, tore up her dress and that's a really intense scene, even in like the animated movie where like they're ripping up her dress and just being super mean to her. But Joseph's brother sell him into slavery. So not fun at all, right? He does have that over Cinderella. She didn't get sold. In the, well, she's kind of a slave, but yeah. she's, she's already a slave. Yeah. Or at least she's in her house and not in somebody else's house. Yeah, she doesn't get officially sold into slavery. So Joseph gets sold into slavery. Meanwhile, the brothers take that beautiful, you know, cloak that, um, you know, that Joseph was so proud of. And they, they get some, you know, they rip it all up and they get some blood and put it on there. And they just bring it to Jacob. And I'm sure very innocently say like, oh, look, we found this. Does it belong to your son, Joseph? We don't know, but we thought it might, you know, they act all innocent or whatever. And Jacob is, of course, so upset. So he thinks that Joseph is dead. And it's just it's very tragic for Jacob. So. Joseph gets taken into slavery in Egypt and gets given or sold to a guy named Potiphar, who is pretty high up in the G Egyptian government. Um, some, some, you know, translations say that he was the captain of the guard or he was kind of in charge of the prison, but he was, he was high up there. You know, he's an important guy in um, the Egyptian culture. And so Joseph is, you know, a slave there, but kind of rises to the absolute top of the house. Wherever he is, he succeeds. The Bible talks about how he found favor in Potiphar's eyes and Potiphar trusted him with whatever that, uh, with anything in his house, he trusted it to Joseph. The only thing that Potiphar had to worry about was what he was going to eat for dinner because Joseph like took care of everything. So he was really great, really wonderful, but it wasn't just Potiphar that noticed how wonderful Joseph was, right? wasn't just Potiphar it was Potiphar's wife as well and she kind of kept asking Joseph you know wanted him to go to bed with her wanted him to sleep with her and Joseph said no absolutely not there's no way I can do this and was still holding on to his morals you know still holding on holding on to that you know kept you know denying temptation until finally Potiphar's wife caught him on his own and you know was badgering him again and he tries to run away from her she, she grabs his robe and tears it and then once he, you know, once he, he runs away, then when her husband gets home, she cries rape and says, you know, he tried to, you know, assault me. He tried to rape me. And so Potiphar is- Quick, is let me throw this out here. You guys tell me if this is stupid or not, but like, so in the Disney version, there's that, there's that pivotal scene in the middle before 
stuff gets kind of worse for Cinderella where she gets all her 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 the dress she makes and her sisters all tear it off and rip it and they're like ah and she runs off and she's crying um is there a relation here to joseph getting his garment ripped and torn i mean i would say it's for different reasons here but it's like things are about to get worse for cinderella they're, they're gonna get better but they're about to get worse for her too like it, it gets really bad there and then her fairy godmother shows up you know so she's at her lowest. The fairy godmother shows up. Joseph is about to go to his lowest, and it also has a scene where stuff is ripped up. I don't know, stupid or not. I, I no. I was also no. I was thinking that too because when you read when you read the story of Joseph, and then when you watch like the modern day version of Cinderella, when that happens, it's right after they tell their dream. So hmm. when Joseph told his dream, he was immediately then you know they throw him into the pit. His rags are taken, and the same thing with Cinderella. You know she comes running down the stairs and she says, "I want to go to the ball too." Like that's her dream. And then as soon as she voices that dream, then her you know her <laughs> dress is completely ripped off. And it made made me think. Just it's so important for us to realize too that it's you have to be careful with who you share your dreams with. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. what happens is jealousy sneaks its way in and makes, and what does jealousy do? It makes people do unthinkable things to kill your dreams. And so that, that was the similarity that I saw there. Yeah, I guess actually there's both times it gets worse for Joseph is there's a torn garment. There's his, they mm -hmm. take his coat of many colors, it's torn. Then mm -hmm. the, the lady tears his garment here. And then he, every time he goes down a little bit farther and then Cinderella's, Cinderella's a similar one. When does Joseph become such a good guy? Cause it's like, we kind of get like, I don't know. It feels like, it feels like he tells his brothers these dreams and then it feels like there was a long period of time where they don't see each other or something. And they kind of just like stewing over this because they're like, Oh, like, here's this, here's this Joseph fellow. Like he's coming to, you know, tell us more dreams or something when they, when they, you know, capture him and sell him off. But then he's comes to Egypt and he's such a hard worker and he perseveres through all of these things. And so I'm just curious, like where that happens in the story, like where does he develop into this, so you know, I, I don't I don't know if I, we get really a lot of it's yeah, a, where weird, it's a weird gray area. Come? That's a good point. Yeah, um, I almost I'm almost curious if it's like he's so resigned, similar to how Cinderella's kind of resigned to I don't have a way out of this. I have to I have to grow, I have to figure this out. And so I'm almost curious on maybe like, you know, during that time with the slave traders, if he just is he has this coming like a come to God moment kind of thing where he's just like, Okay, listen, this is this is my life now. Like I don't have a home to go go to. I don't have anywhere else right. to run. Like I have to make the very best of this. Um, but I would find it interesting because it's like it. There feels like so much maturity and growth in such a short amount of time in his life. That's true. Because he's mm -hmm. kind of put under pressure, and mm -hmm. so I don't know. I think I, we. I think we just rush through that part of the story so quickly. Right. I I think though speaking to that Evan is that it's suffering and times like that of persecution that leads to, you have no other choice, but you kind of have to step up and you have to like, you go through this time of maturity, right? So even like when you meet people who like, they'll tell you their age, but you're like, wow, you seem so much more mature. It's because of probably different things that they've, they've gone through, right? You hear their story and you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's why you had no other choice, but you had to kind of just grow up. He, that's what he had to do. He had to grow up yeah. um, because of the circumstances that he was put in. And he could have gone the other direction too. Right. He could he either, could have, he could, yeah, absolutely. He could, you either grow up or like Cinderella, you either just, okay, yeah. I'm going to suffer this or you decide, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get what I can get. 
And both of them mm-hmm. could have gone the other direction, but they don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it all comes down to choice, right? So yeah. I think that's the main thing is it's up to us and we're given that choice every single day. Right. Absolutely. So Joseph gets thrown in prison and wanted to get your guys' take on this. So it says when Potiphar finds out he's furious and so he throws Joseph in prison. However, he the prison that Joseph gets thrown in is the prison um, where like the king's prisoners go in. So this wasn't like the um, the lowest of the low, the people who get caught stealing bread go to this prison. This was where like the king put his prisoners, like maybe his kind of political prisoners. So it's just interesting to me that, that Potiphar puts Joseph in this prison when he was a slave and he tried to rape the master's wife, you know, supposedly. Like I would think the punishment for that could have been death, right? But no, he puts Joseph into the prison. So it makes me think either there was something totally supernatural going on where God just had his hand on Joseph, which is part of it, or Potiphar was like, eh, I don't know if I quite believe my wife, you know? So at least if I put Joseph in this prison, he's not going to die, but I'm going to at least be able to kind of keep my eye on him a little bit. So interesting. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but we can, I guess, kind of. I have a feeling that she accused a couple other people prior to that, yeah. probably. It wasn't the I... first time. Yeah, I, I just I think I, I think I'm closer to that understanding where it's like Potiphar probably saw this kind of thing a lot and was like, you know, I can't not do anything because then, you know, it's it's shame on your household. And so it's like he was kind of right. forced. His hand was forced. So, right. Yeah, he so, was he was uh, he had his doubts probably he had a safe face. Right, yeah, exactly. yeah. So Joseph gets put in prison, but it's like he doesn't even let that get him down because just like he kind of rose to the top at Potiphar's house he rises to the top of the prison and just like God uh, gave Joseph favor with Potiphar he gives him favor with the chief jailer and before long Joseph was in charge of all the other prisoners and just over everything that happened in the prison he was like in charge of the prison basically which is just completely incredible and it says just like Potiphar didn't have any worries over his house the chief jailer did not have any worries over the jail because Joseph took care of everything and made everything just run smoothly and successfully so we fast forward a little bit later in time. We don't know exactly how long when Joseph is still in prison and the Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker do something to anger Pharaoh. And so they get thrown in prison. So they're in prison and both of them, guess what? They have a dream. So we have these dreams come up and they're both just very worried by their dreams. And so Joseph says, well, well, well tell me your dreams. So they both tell them their dreams and he interprets the dreams and essentially tells the cupbearer that, hey, this is what your dream means. In three days time, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your rightful position and you're going to, he's going to forgive you and you're going to go back to your your position as cupbearer. But he says, please don't forget, like, don't forget me when you go, when you go back to Pharaoh. He's like, I'm in, I'm in prison for doing something I didn't do. Please remember my name. Remember me. Remember that I'm here. He tells the baker, unfortunately, what happens to you is in three days, uh, you're going to die. Pharaoh is going to have you executed. So I'm sure the baker, after hearing the cupbearer's dream, he's like, oh yeah, like I'm going to get back in favor with the king too. But no, no. His interpretation is that he's going to die. And exactly what Joseph interpreted the dreams as happening, that's exactly what happens. The baker is executed and the cupbearer gets back to his place with Pharaoh. But unfortunately, he instantly forgets. He forgets Joseph. He's back in, in Pharaoh's good graces and he completely forgets Joseph, unfortunately. So a couple years after that, two years later after that, Pharaoh now is having these dreams. He's having 
dreams that are, you know, are bothering him. And um, he's telling everyone, he's trying to tell all of his wise men, all of his, his advisors, you know, someone tell me what my dreams mean. Like, I'm just so worried and bothered over these dreams. No one can tell him what, what his dreams mean, but the cupbearer bearer, all of a sudden, like, you know, very conveniently, all of a sudden remembers Joseph, doesn't he? And he says, Hey, you know, King, there's this guy in the prison. And when I was in prison, he interpreted my dream. And so what do they do? They go and get Joseph bring him before Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells him his dreams. He had two dreams and Joseph interprets them and tells him in so many words, Hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of plenty in Egypt where there's going to be just tons of food. There's going to be tons of everything, but that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So it's like, what you need to do is go ahead and gather extra food during those seven years of plenty. And then you'll have enough for, you know, when the famine goes. So it's like, put someone that you trust, put him in charge of this project and just, you know, collect enough food during the seven years of plenty. And so Ferris says, okay. So he tells Joseph, he's like, okay, I want you in charge of this. What? Which is just so incredible. So he gets brought into the house of the king and Joseph is now second in command of the entire country of Egypt. So it's like, he, he keeps like going up. He's like second in command at Potiphar's house, then does get thrown into prison, but he's like second command in prison. And now he's like second in command to the entire country of Egypt is Joseph. It had to be so awkward when he runs in that cupbearer again. I know, right? <laughs> like, bro, you're going back to prison. <laughs> We're I know, <done>. exactly. <laughs> How dare you forget me? I know, I hope he felt, I hope he felt awkward and <laughs> hope he felt really bad about himself. <laughs> this point in the story, this is like basically where Cinderella's story ends. Because she gets her happy ending and she gets her prince. And then it's kind of like, uh, this happened to her stepmother and everything ends. But then Joseph gets like this whole other like episode of his story where he gets to have this whole thing with his brothers. Um, and, he, and we get to see like, what's he, he's not just a prince, like he's doing all this sort of good stuff. So I guess the difference there is that these stories in the Bible have, a, have an added layer of realism, I think, and, and, and meaning for us. Where it's not just, okay, Cinderella, you do good. Here's your, here's your happy ending, you know, but it's like, you do good. Now here's what you can do with what you do good, you know, mm, and so we get good. to, we, we get mm. to see all the things that he actually gets to do. Right. Absolutely. Well, even as literature, especially with these stories, like, it's just like you're saying, it's a whole nother level of depth where it's like, we're not just living off of these, you know, the world would say, do good things and good things are going to happen to you. And that's how a lot of these fairy tales kind of just cut off at that point. And so the literary beauty of of the Bible a lot of times is there's that added depth where it's like, well, there's, you know, there's a redemption arc and there's there's salvation and there's like a restoration of a relationship between her. Like it just goes so much deeper than anything that we've anything we see in fairy tales and so mm -hmm. that's why it's good i think you know it's good that I, I think we bring these stories in and kind of show the similarities because we don't have to stop at that that stopping point where the fairy tale is and we say you know if there's more to this like you know maybe she maybe cinderella after that fact could have um impacted her stepsisters and changed the way that they saw her and and you know what i mean like there's just there's so much more of an arc uh, to these characters because they are real and they are real people and they have gone through real problems where it feels like some of these some of these fairy tales feel like they're written just to kind of I don't know like I said like fill time occasionally so what happens in the narrative the story we're we're alluding to it but you know the famine is affecting everywhere it's affecting even 
where uh, Joseph's brothers and his dad is living. So his dad basically tells the boys, what are you guys standing around here for? What are you standing around looking at each other for? Why don't, why don't you go to Egypt? They have plenty. Why don't you go ahead and go there and get food for us? So they go and, you know, I'm sure they, I'm sure the Egyptians had multiple people from different countries coming to them, trying to buy grain off of them. And so, and Joseph's in charge that he gets to say yes or no to these people that are coming. And so he sees his brothers coming toward him. And I wonder just like what he would have felt when he sees his brothers coming toward him and they bow down, you know, they, they have to bow down before him. And, you know, cause he's basically Egyptian royalty at that point and they don't recognize him. And it's interesting because I think it's at that point where it says Joseph remembered his dreams. So it's like at one point, those dreams, like that he, he had forgotten about those dreams. All those years ago, the dreams where his brothers would bow down before him. He must have forgotten those because the text specifically says, then Joseph remembered his dreams. And he's kind of starting to see how all this is, you know, is, is going to, is going to work out. So remember the dreams that he had and, um, crazy stuff happens in the story. Go read it for yourself, listeners, if you haven't read it. We're just giving you a, a quick kind of summary here. Um, so Joseph, you know, kind of maybe gives his brothers a little bit of hard time. He says, hey, you know, asking questions about his dad, making sure the dad's living. He says, well, next time you come with you, so I know that you're telling the truth, bring your younger brother with you, Benjamin, who would have been uh, Joseph's, you know, full brother. And so the brothers go home, you know, they end up coming back later and they come back with the younger brother, Benjamin. And uh, Joseph kind of enacts this kind of clever plot, I guess, to, to kind of see whether or not they're sorry. He invites his brothers for a big meal and then uh, kind of accuses Benjamin of stealing from him. And so he says, you know, he's going to be my slave. You know, he's the rest of you can go, but he's going to stay here and serve me for the rest of his life. And the brothers are just so, you know, completely broken. And they're talking amongst themselves saying, this is our punishment for what we did to Joseph all those years ago. And Joseph sees that his brothers has changed because one of the brothers tells him and says, please, like, this is going to kill my dad. You cannot take our younger brother, Benjamin. Take me instead. Send Benjamin home. I will do whatever you need. Take me instead of Benjamin. So it's at that point that Joseph recognizes that his brothers have changed and he cries. And I think the text even says he cries so loudly that all of Egypt heard him. Like he was just so filled with emotion. And that happens a couple of times in the stories where Joseph is just so filled with emotion that he just, he just weeps and he weeps. So he makes himself known to his brothers, you know, they can't believe it. They have a big, I guess, you know, kind of reunion. He forgives them, that theme of forgiveness. And then um, they're able to go get Jacob. Jacob comes back to uh, Egypt and the rest of them are able to live there and kind of, and be saved from the famine. So I guess that would be their, that, you know, generation's version of kind of happily ever after, you know. I love the fact that he doesn't even like, he doesn't even like dwell on he doesn't even dwell on that fact that like oh i remember this dream and like oh i'm i'm finally doing this thing where i'm standing in front of them and they're bowing before me like it doesn't even like he's just so overcome with emotion because these are the people that he even deep down still loves and all of that and it's just i don't know it's such an impactful moment because it's like i think it gives us kind of vision of our own dreams and it's like you know what these dreams come to pass but i think you when your dreams finally come true if you've waited for all of these years for this this south this memo salvation or restoration or whatever you want to you want to feel or experience a lot of times you're so in the you're in that moment and you're like wow i can't believe that this is finally happening but none of the specifics really matter none of the the little things really matter because it's just like wow this has finally come to pass and i, I can i don't know it's like i can finally rest i don't have to wait on my dream anymore 
I think too that, you know, what's interesting is most times when a dream is given, very, very rarely is that dream fulfilled right away. Very rare. And a lot of times when we are given a dream, it's there's a journey that one must go on. And in Joseph's case, the journey he went on lasted many, many years. And even sometimes we forget those dreams, but then they come to fruition in the end because throughout the entire story, you see that it said Joseph kept like he kept the right spirit. And it said that the Lord was with him. And because he knew the Lord was with him, I think that's what ultimately determined his destiny because Joseph could have had the choice to allow himself to go a different direction, kind of what was alluded to earlier. And I think that's what's so powerful about the story of Joseph is that even when he forgot the dream, he kept reminding himself that the Lord was still with him. So what are other things, what are other kind of takeaways that we can learn from the story of Joseph? I think like Cinderella, uh, suffer persecution with meekness, you know, and, and that word meekness there, we think of that someone, we think of somebody who's meek is somebody who's weak. And I don't think that's what the Bible means. I don't think that's what the word really means. I think somebody who's meek is somebody who, somebody who could fight back, but doesn't. Cause at least we know with Joseph, Joseph's not like a stupid guy. Like he's really smart. And like, he could have even if he couldn't retaliate at people in the moment, once he became the second guy in all of Egypt, he could have gotten back at every person that he mm. ever wanted to. Good point. Like he could have hurt all those people. And, and same thing with Cinderella. We don't, we don't see even in the even in the grim version of the story where the sisters get their eyes pecked out. That's not Cinderella's fault. She doesn't go back and try to get revenge, and she suffers her persecution with meekness rather than trying to strike back at someone and pay them back for. Um, for what they've done to her. Same thing with Joseph. And I think that's very important. You know, if I could digress just for a small moment, you know, it seems like there's so much stuff in our world today where everybody's looking for a reason to snipe somebody else and get somebody else. You know, we have cancel culture and all that stuff where it's one little thing you're trying to get somebody else and it's who, who can get the other person. We've got, to, we've got to learn, especially with social media, we've got to learn how to suffer persecution with meekness. Even though you could strike back. If you can't strike back, you're not really being meek. But if you can strike back and you don't, I think that's what, what the Lord wants us to do. What, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, right? I don't know if they inherit the earth or if they, what, what they get I think in that it is. equation. I think it is, yeah. But you know, the meek are to be blessed. So we can learn that from Cinderella and from Joseph. That's really good. And kind of another layer of that, I think, is, and this is also words, words of Jesus as well, is loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Throughout the story, Joseph had a lot of enemies, if you will. I mean, there's his brothers in the story, um, but even when he's in, in prison, like the people who that enslaved him, whether it's Potiphar, any of the other servants or slaves at the house while he's in prison, he, he doesn't just take the easy way out. He's not lazy. He's not mean to people. He tries his absolute hardest wherever he is. So he treats people well. Even though Potiphar like has him enslaved, he's doing his absolute best for Potiphar. He's taking care of everything for Potiphar. When Potiphar's wife is trying to get a, get him to sleep with her, he says, no, like I can't sin against my master and I can't sin against God. So even though he had opportunities to do wrong to kind of get back at people, honestly, wouldn't that be a perfect way for him to have gotten back at Potiphar for like buying him and like enslaving him was to like, you know, sleep with his wife. But no, he doesn't do that when he's in the prison, you know, he's, you know, nice kind of the people that are there. He interprets the dreams of those people. He didn't have to do that. He kind of offers to do it. You know, he didn't have to do that. He's kind to these other people, even when obviously the cupbearer was not nice to him because he totally forgot about him for years, you know, but he's still kind to people. And of course there's his brothers, right? That's kind of the ultimate version. And some of the language that Joseph speaks to his brothers 
and the, the final bits of the story is I think probably some of the most beautiful and the most poignant in the entire Bible in Genesis 45 verse 5 and speaking to his brothers he says but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life so Joseph understood the reason for the trials that he was going through and he realized that everything that happened to him even though he didn't like it he realized that there was a purpose to it you know and one of my favorite verses in the Bible after Jacob dies, the brothers kind of come back to Joseph because they're a little bit nervous. They think that, oh, well, you know, now that our dad's died, maybe Joseph is going to kind of pay us back for all the things that we did to him. And Joseph says to his brothers, he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So even through everything that Joseph went through, he still was kind to people. He still really loved his enemies. And, um, you know, was, was, was kind to people. And even when there was probably a whole lot of reasons for him not to. Absolutely. And Dinah, that was the exact verse that I was going to share because it's such a powerful one. No, (laughs) it's yeah, but it is, it's so good. You know how he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And, And we know, you know, the Bible also speaks to the fact that all things do work together for his good. It's to reveal his glory in the earth. And what was that? For the saving of many lives. And Joseph knew that and he came to see that. And so that's why he kept the faith and continued to keep it. And that's what we're called to is to continually put our faith in God by living a life of obedient faith unto him. We know that even when evil things happen and we suffer, that God will use it for his glory to be revealed in the earth. And that is what our lives are meant to be. And Joseph saw that. And so what a beautiful story of redemption. And as with a lot of our stories, there's no way around uh, the person that was at times hated the most, betrayed the most, um, persecuted the most. Uh, you know, we look to Jesus as our perfect example. And so um, it's really it's really incredible when we can see the different instances that he uses to use that persecution, those moments where people are critical of of him and Jesus is able to turn that situation into a moment in which he's able to influence those same people as well as others around. Um, there's just something to be said about when we can show love the way that Christ does to others in spite of the way that they feel about us, in spite of the way that they treat us. Um, it's just a it's it's an amplification of the the character that we see um, in Cinderella, the character that we see in in Joseph, the way that the way that Jesus just emanates love in, in every aspect, no matter what else is going on around him. And it legitimately changes the lives of everyone that they touch. And I think I think each of us have specific examples where we've seen that for, for ourselves, where we've dealt with people that are not agreeable, they're difficult to work with, and yet somehow our consistent love of those people and Jesus in us and loving them through us manages to break down these barriers and kind of open up who this person is. And in reality, they're, they're someone who was just broken and just looking for love themselves. Um, again, our best example, our perfect example, and this will be a theme. I assure you throughout the life of this podcast, Jesus is our prime example in, in all of these themes that we discuss. Amen. So, so good. So, uh, and we see these, these types of themes that we talked about with Cinderella and Joseph, we see these pop up in a lot of literature and a lot of stories, whether it's fairy tales, even other biblical, um, 
retell, you know, tellings in, in the Bible, we see these types of things pop up. So what do you guys think? Any other ones that you guys can think of that might have kind of similar, similar storylines to Joseph and Cinderella? The first one that comes to mind is we mentioned it a little bit at the very beginning is Snow White, a uh, similar sort of story with a, with a princess, a heroine who is persecuted by a stepmother, um, but who has dreams of marrying a prince and who stays good and pure and eventually gets her dream comes true in the end. Um, and of course, the, the, the most obvious one for Snow White is going to be the Disney movie as well there, the, the Walt Disney classic. Uh, I, I personally think Snow White is inferior to Cinderella because Cinderella has more depth as a character and has some more layers there. And I think um, it does better than, than the first one. But there's something really interesting about Snow White um, that I, I noticed when the last time I was watching is that if you go throughout the story, Snow White doesn't do much at all. Okay, For, she, she's, she's very passive. Um, she's almost not even a character because she's so, she's almost a flat character because she's just so purely good. She doesn't get upset, nothing. And, and you know, she doesn't do anything almost. So you get to the end of the story and she is, you know, the, the wicked witch gets her, gets her just rewards and all that. But it kind of seems arbitrary. You know, she, the witch is up there and lightning strikes the rock and she falls to her death. And so I watched it and thought, yeah, it's kind of cool, but it's a little bit arbitrary. There's not a lot of connection between what Snow White does and what happens. Except when you go back and you see something really interesting is that before Snow White goes to bed, she prays mm -hmm. and she prays and asks God multiple things. Well, she didn't say God, but I mean, in a European context, it's a Christian context. There's nobody else she's praying to. She's praying to God and she prays that all her dreams would come true. She even prays that Grumpy will like her. Now, you look at the end of the story, Grumpy likes her at the end. So that prayer gets answered. So so you look at Cinderella's, she doesn't do much, or I'm sorry, Snow White, she doesn't do much, but she prays and her prayers do get answered. And if you look at that that ending scene, that scene where the, the, the wicked witch gets her reward, it's a lightning bolt from heaven. It's like fire from heaven. So I don't know what Walt Disney was trying to do when he made the movie, but there seems to be something, there, there's something tied together there between what... Snow White's prayers, and then they get answered. And, and this is why I think Disney must have known, because the final shot of the movie is the prince carrying Snow White off to a castle in the clouds. I don't know why it would be a castle in the clouds if it's not meant to be some kind of celestial place. And so, again, Snow White is good, and she's she's pious, and she's good. She's kind to people. She, she keeps her faith, and she even says her prayers. And in the end, it all works out. Now, we know that in real life, it doesn't always happen that way. You know, but we we do believe that God helps people, you know, and he works all things, you know, all things are the good to them who are the love of the Lord who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So um, that's one aspect. I think Snow White does get a little over Cinderella. She has faith in her fairy godmother, but there God's in there somewhere in Snow White. Hmm. Never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Uh, another, another story that I want to make mention of that is not as lovely and enchanting as Snow White, but is a little more on the suffering side, would be the story of Job. And I know a lot of times when I'm talking to people, they share that they really do not like the book of Job and they don't see any purpose to reading the book of Job. It's just to them, it's really depressing. But in all actuality, I think the story of Job is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible because it speaks to the fact that no matter who you are, what your background is, you will face suffering in this life. And Job suffers not because of anything he has done, but because he lives in a fallen world, living alongside fallen people. 
And his story actually addresses this idea behind retributive theology. And for those who don't know, retribution theology is just a fancy way of saying the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. However, we come to understand that even righteous and good people will suffer. So the suffering that we go through is not a result of God's absence in our lives, but it's a result of man's free will. And man's free will is what has produced this evil in the hearts of men and causes them to do these horrendous things. And that's what we've seen in a lot of these stories that we've mentioned in Cinderella and in, in Joseph. You may ask, well, if man's free will makes man do horrible things, then why did God give us free will? Well, true love is possible because of the free will that God has given us, because love ultimately is a choice. So God gave us free will so that we can make that choice choice to choose him in return to love God and to love others so that's in essence what a big part of the story of Job is but I could get all into it into all 42 chapters but I think it just comes down to the fact that you know we all are going to suffer and Job's friends were telling him you just need to repent you just need to repent and uh, because they're like you've done something wrong that's why you're suffering but that wasn't the aspect the aspect is that we're all human and so we're all going to suffer no matter how good we try to be that that's part of living in a fallen world but keeping our eyes fixated on God that God has way greater understanding than we do. We're humans, we're limited, we have finite understanding. Um, and that's what Job comes to recognize in the very end. What I was kind of struck with this time and kind of going through Cinderella and going through the Cinderella stories is the similarities to A Little Princess. Don't know if anyone's heard of that, but it was a book written by Frances Hodgson Burnett, a children's story published in the early 1900s. But uh, there actually are a lot of similar similarities to, to Cinderella. You know, this time it's a child though. So I like the fact that it puts it kind of in language for children to understand and this young girl who's you know favored by her dad and she gets sent to a boarding school and she's kind of the the, the one who's kind of the, the little darling of the boarding school and she's kind of spoiled there because her dad has a lot of money and then he dies and there's no one there to take her in and so she just like poor Cinderella when her dad dies she's you know she has to go live in the attic and she you know is dressed in rags basically starved is abused by the people at the the boarding school and she has to work you know to, to earn her key but yet she's still kind to other people she kind of takes the other servant girl under her wing there's a little uh, one of the little girls at the boarding school um kind of has you know a lot of uh, behavioral issues uh the girl Sarah's her name she takes that little girl under her wing and is just continually nice and kind throughout the whole story and um towards the end she kind of gets a little bit of her her happy her happy ending um someone kind of takes her under their wing and she gets kind of you know raised back up in society and gets gets adopted by one of her dad's really good friends um so it kind of all works out for her but again same thing of like a suffering heroine heroine who um still does right and continues to be kind and good even when she's going through persecution and the thing that again I think is interesting about this story is that it's it's a children's book and so it puts it in terms that children can understand because as I'm sure there was times when um when the story was written and just like there's times now where sadly kids go through these horrible things and it's bad enough when you see an adult or like a young person going through these types of things but when you see a child that's going through this type of stuff and you know 100 that they didn't deserve it I think it it's really tough but then it makes kind of that happy ending just so much more more poignant I think I feel like I'm always uh put out by by the weird things that run through my head when I think about some of these things that we discuss on here. And so the first thing I promise you, like the first thing that came to mind is just like how eternally optimistic Cinderella is and just how like 
I don't know. It, it makes me think like if she had, if she had like her father got married to this stepmother and she like ran away and like fell asleep like next to the tombstone of her mother and like and then just dreamt the rest of the story. I wouldn't be surprised by that. You know what I mean? And it just makes me think of the <laughs> the Big Rock Candy Mountains, which is a song from the 1920s by Harry McClintock, which basically is just hobos dreaming of a perfect existence. And so I just want to like quote a little bit of this song for you. Um, but some of the lines go like- Can you sing like, it? No, 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 Evan, can you just sing it? <clears throat> you should sing it. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is even reading through it, I'm like reading through it in the tune. Um, then just but do I, it. I will spare, <laughs> I will spare you that. Um, but just like one of the verses is in the Big Rock Candy Mountains, all the cops have wooden legs and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and all the hens lay soft boiled eggs. The farmer's Aww. trees are full of fruit and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the winds don't blow in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. And it basically <laughs> is like, it's not, it's not something that like, if, if a rich man dreamt of his perfect paradise, like there wouldn't be any of these things, but it's yeah. literally just these oppressed, these poor, these hurting people, just thinking about the very, the very best reality, not where there's like plentiful food, but like, oh, the eggs that I find from the hens are just, they just so happen to already be soft boiled. I can just eat them right where they are. And so it's just kind of like this eternal, like this innocent eternal hope and i think it really just resonates with that story of cinderella because it's like she's not hoping for anything astronomical or, or she just wants the best version of her life and i think there's yeah. something really beneficial for us to look at that and just say you know i don't have to have everything but i just want the best version of my life um and i think there's something really just kind of like i said like innocent and hopeful and kind of exciting about that thinking about it in that way. So we've talked a lot about happy endings today, whether it's with Joseph or Cinderella or even Snow White or the big the Big Rock Candy Mountains. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Are these types of stories realistic? Is a happy ending realistic? I think the first thing is that fairy tales are not necessarily supposed to be realistic. And I think that's okay. They're supposed to, as we talked about at the beginning, they illustrate a point for us. So is Cinderella realistic? Well, probably not, you know, but it does teach us something really important in, in that is if you act certain ways and live in certain ways, you can have a better ending. No, it's not going to be perfect and wonderful and everything, but you can have a better ending. Um, and so this idea of like, someday my prince will come. Well, I mean, don't just sit at home and wait for your prince. Go out and maybe try to find him or do what you can do to get it. But I think these stories... Um, can be realistic with a happy ending. I mean, look at Joseph's story. He goes through all kinds of stuff and then he gets that ending in the end. For him, for him, even more than Cinderella, because it's not just a fairy tale, he does something to make his ending better. You know, and I think we can definitely take that from these stories is that yes, you can have a happy ending. You're going to have to work for it, but you can have a happy ending. I think it comes from our personal definition of ending. And I think how, how people, people's personal beliefs or spiritual beliefs I think that's really where it plays in because it's just like, I don't know, life, life can end tragically. Life can end quickly. And, and there are often times where I think we set ourselves up with, with bad expectations. And again, I just, what I was saying before, like, I think it, it comes from thinking about like how, what's the best version of our life? What are the expectations that I have for 
what I want to see accomplished in my life. I don't have to have the world to say it was happy for me, but, but what few things do I have to have around me that mean like, you know, if I, if I die tomorrow, what does it take to be, to be happy? I think it's, I think it's realistic and I think happy endings can come to pass, but I think it depends on how we, how we frame those things, how we frame our own happiness and really setting ourselves up for, success spiritually and mentally to say, I only need so much to be happy. And I think, you know, the same is true of our lives. We all experience happy chapters and then we also experience um, some that are more sorrowful, but we must remind it that, you know, happiness is, it's a temporary thing, but for just as you were saying, Evan, like for, you know, the Christian, for someone who has a greater hope that we know that the ultimate happy ending um, is an eternal end. And that's what is what we're hoping to, you know, to live our lives for. And in that, there is a happy ending. And I think too, and I like how you mentioned Jen, that like, it doesn't mean it's all going to be happy. There might be happy chapters and sad chapters. And it puts in mind, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, our our good old friend, J.R.R. He wrote an essay and we've mentioned this in previous episodes. It's called on fairy stories. And in talking about fairy tales, he talks about what sets fairy tales or fairy stories apart from other stories is what he calls the consolation of a happy ending or the consolation of hope, but consolation of a happy ending. And he talks about how just like tragedy is the true form of drama, happy endings is the true form of a fairy story. And he describes it as, and I'm quoting here, a sudden joyous turn of events. He says, quote, it is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur, end quote. And so this would be kind of that element of magic or the supernatural that we see in a lot of these versions of Cinderella, or really even in the story of Joseph and like the supernatural hand of God, you know, talk about something supernatural in stories. Those of us that are Christians and believe in the, believe in the hand of God in our life, that is something that's completely supernatural in our lives. And so what, what he's kind of saying here is that these stories don't necessarily deny the existence of sorrow and failure. In fact, what makes these stories possible is that you have to have the possibility of there being sorrow and failure. But what it does deny is what Tolkien calls the universal final defeat, the universal final defeat. And instead it gives us a glimpse of joy. So kind of what he's saying here is a little bit to what you're alluding to, Jen, is not that there's not trials and bad things in fairy stories. Like look, look how bad it got for Cinderella, you know, like she's in a horrible situation. You know, she she wants to go to the ball and all of the you know, her sisters were, you know, abusive to her. her stepmother was abusive to her. She gets locked in her room when, you know, when the, the Duke comes to, to help her try on this, you know, to, to find the maidens. So this bad stuff happens, but that's not the end of the story, you know, but by the time you get to the end of the story, but when it's all said and done and the story is finally over, we know that the end is not going to be to defeat, but it's going to be one of joy and it's going to be one of happiness and a happy ending. So we've talked a lot, you guys, we've geeked out over all these stories of Cinderella and Joseph, but before it gets mid- gets to be midnight and before we turn into a pumpkin, ha ha ha, see what we did there? We're gonna, <laughs> um, it's the, the cheesiest one I could come up with. We're going to start to transition out and we want to get each of our last words. So Evan, what's your last word for us today? Um, at face value. Cinderella feels like a story about finding love, but in reality, reality, I think the longevity probably is due in, a, in large part to the ideas of escapism and oppressed people just dreaming of a better existence and a better life. Um, I think that we have hope in, in the story of Cinderella. We have hope in our eternal salvation. I, I think that 
it's just a beautiful existence. It's a beautiful experience when we understand that we've suffered, we've dealt with things. And when we have the promise of there's no more crying, there's no more sickness. It's only because we endured sickness and crying and, and sadness that we can taste of the joy and the grace and just the eternal peace of what is to come. And that's all I need. So good. I love it. Jennifer, what's your happy, what's your, I was going to say, what's your happy ending? But <laughs> what is your last word? <laughs> I would say for me, what strikes me the most in both the story of Joseph and Cinderella is that their identity wasn't placed in their circumstances. And so despite the fact that they had to go through some really hard things at the, at the evil hand of others, they allowed their view on life to still be one that was filled with hope. And I think that's what it comes back down to is because of their hope that was in something beyond, they were able to continually just live their lives and not allow the evil of others to uh, damage their self-worth, to damage who they were, to damage you know their future, their destiny, uh, to ultimately their happy ending. And I think that's such a powerful example to us today that once again, I already mentioned this, but it does come down to choice and that we have the choice to not allow our own circumstances determine our identity. And we know as Christians that our identity is in Jesus Christ. And when we have that, that is the lens by which we live our lives. Awesome. Benjamin, what's your last word? I think maybe we should have said somewhere at the beginning of even the last episode is that we don't believe that everybody's story is going to be a fairy tale you know that these fairy tales are like what things are really going to be like in real life you know um but we do believe that like Dinah said talking about that, that quote from Tolkien that the ultimate ending is going to be a good ending you know and if you're a Christian and we may have some listeners who are not Christians or maybe who haven't decided yet but if you are a Christian you do believe in this concept of someday my prince will come because we do believe that the Prince of Peace, who is our King, Jesus, is going to come back someday and he's going to take us to a home up in heaven. He's going to set everything right that has been wrong, like some sort of uber fairy tale. So again, there bad things are going to happen along the way. And you you have a choice whether or not when you come, whether or not you're going to be a part of you know his kingdom and whether or not he's coming for you. But if you choose Jesus, this idea of someday my Prince will come can actually be a pretty helpful and a pretty hopeful um, and comforting idea to, to, to talk about. So no, we don't believe everything, everything's going to happen and end up like a fairy tale, but we do believe that the very end is going to be a happy ending. Very good. My last word is just the word of hope. And Jennifer, you were talking about this, this as well, but I think the reason these stories are important is that they can give us hope. And so we can see this, this idea that, you know, if you if you have a good attitude and you're kind to people, then that, you know, your life is going to turn out better. We can see that type of stuff in the made-up story of Cinderella. We know that we've said that, that Cinderella is a fairy tale, so we can see it in the made-up story of Cinderella, but also in the true story of Joseph. And it's so important for us to listen to these stories because we can listen to these stories and be encouraged that, hey, if it worked out for someone else, then maybe it can work out for me. Or if someone else had these things happen to them, if they were able to uh, succeed and triumph through their trials or through persecution, then maybe I can too. So I guess my, my words for whoever's listening today is that even if you feel like your story doesn't have a happy ending or you feel like it's not happy right now, just remember that your story is not over yet. Jeremiah 29, 11 reminds us, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord 
They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Well, thank you so much everyone for joining us on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamppost in the Woods and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. That cool intro and outro music is called Missing Peace, and that is composed and performed by Jacob Koppel, aka Dinah and Benjamin's little brother. So Jennifer, where can people connect with us on social media? You can connect with us on Instagram at Lamppost in the Woods. Please, please, please comment, like, share with your friends. We love hearing from you guys. It's been awesome just getting to connect with a few of you on, on our previous episodes and tell us what you guys love to read because as we've mentioned before, we will take that into consideration on the type of episodes that are coming, not only in this season, but in the seasons to come. Awesome, yes, so please connect with us. We hope very much that you all will join us for our next episode. Benjamin, why don't you tell us what we will be discussing next time? For episode five, we are going to talk about the importance, the large importance of small actions. And we're going to have a couple different uh, works to bring to you guys. So uh, listen to us next time. Yes, I'm excited for that. So everyone, wherever you find yourself on life's journey, we hope and pray that this lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a hopeful future. See you next time. 